Welcome to the Come Follow Me with David Ridges podcast for the week of October 18th through 24th. I'm your guest host, Ari Vandegraaff, the author of the forthcoming Old Testament Come Follow Me activity book. Today we are discussing sections 121, 122, and 123 in the Doctrine and Covenants. These three sections are excerpts from two letters written by Joseph Smith while in Liberty Jail. The full text of those letters can be found in David Ridge's The Doctrine and Covenants Made Easier. When considering history, we probably too often view it with an understanding of how it will ultimately play out. We revel in stories of George Washington and his ragtag army because we know, in the end, Washington and his soldiers will be viewed as patriots and not traitors. But to Washington and the men who fought and died for him, there was no guarantee that things would turn out in their favor. Likewise, Latter-day Saints view the time Joseph Smith, along with a few of his friends and fellow saints, spent in Liberty Jail as something sacred. From time to time, we've even referred to it as a prison temple. And certainly, the counsel and instruction included in sections 121, 122, and 123 are some of the most wonderful in all of Scripture. But let's be clear. The only reason we venerate Joseph's experience in Liberty Jail is because we know the end from the beginning. We know that on April 15, 1839, after over five months of imprisonment, Joseph and his fellow prisoners are allowed to escape, that they would soon work their way out of Missouri into Illinois, and that in time they would see Zion's growth manifest in the thriving city of Nauvoo. To us, Liberty Jail was a place where valuable lessons were learned and beautiful scriptures received. But to those who experienced it, well, let me read from a letter Hiram Smith wrote to Edward Partridge. The prison was a hell surrounded with demons, if not those who are damned, where we are compelled to hear nothing but blasphemous oaths and witness a scene of blasphemy and drunkenness and hypocrisy and debaucheries of every description. Speaking of history, perhaps it's best if we quickly review some of the events that led to Liberty Jail. A few weeks ago, we reviewed the Pentecostal experience that was the dedication of the Kirtland Temple in our Come Follow Me study. Within months of that spiritual experience, the church in Kirtland was in trouble. The cost to build the Kirtland Temple left the church in deep debt. Money trouble plagued the church through 1836 and 1837. An effort to address the issue resulted in a failed bank, the Kirtland Safety Society. The bank's failure ruined a number of saints financially and led to a feeling of apostasy, which resulted in the excommunication of 50 leading members of the church. According to historian Milton V. Bachman Jr., between November 1837 and June 1838, possibly two or three hundred Kirtland saints withdrew from the church representing from 10 to 15% of the membership there. This period of apostasy marked the end of the church's time in Ohio. In January 1838, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon left Kirtland for Missouri, the other major headquarters of the church. Within a year, most of the faithful saints in Ohio would follow them to Missouri. That the church was even in Missouri in 1838 is somewhat a surprise 
considering the events of 1833 and 1834, when the Saints were driven from Jackson County and the ill-fated Zion's camp failed to restore them to the promised land of Zion. In the interim, however, some well-meaning Missourians carved out a place for the refugee Latter-day Saints. In 1836, legislation created two new counties in northern Missouri, Caldwell County and the adjacent Davies County. Caldwell County was expected to be exclusively Mormon. I can use that term because in 1836, the Lord hadn't yet revealed the name of the church. While there was some confusion as to the status of Davies County, members of the church believed it was available for Mormons and non-Mormons alike to settle. Other Missourians didn't see that way, believing that the church was only permitted to settle in Caldwell County. Soon far west, located in Caldwell County, was the headquarters for the saints, and almost immediately, it proved to be too small for the growing church. Settlements soon spread to neighboring Davies County, including Adam on Diamond. The trouble in Missouri that ultimately culminated in Liberty Jail began in earnest on Election Day, August 6, 1838. Longtime Missourians in Davies County worried about Latter-day Saint influence in the government. By this time, the name of the church had been given, so I suppose I'm done using the term Mormon. Just like the violence at Jackson County five years earlier, conflict was driven by the fear of too much political power in the hands of Latter-day Saints. When a handful of Latter-day Saints showed up to vote at the polls, they were assaulted by a number of hostile Missourians who had no intention in allowing the Saints to vote, even though there wasn't even a member of the church on the ballot. The violence on August 6th seemed to open a floodgate. Skirmishes between Latter-day Saints and Missourians continued through the end of the summer and into the fall. During the final days of October, things turned for the worse. Samuel Bogart, an enemy of the Saints and a captain in the Missouri State Militia, led a military exhibition into Caldwell County, where his men took three Latter-day Saints prisoner. On October 25, 1838, Apostle David Patton led a group of Saints on a rescue mission. The saints were ambushed by Bogart's men in a place called Crooked River. There, amid gunfire from both sides, the saints were able to rescue their kidnapped friends. But their actions proved to be costly. Four saints lost their lives, including Apostle David Patton, earning him the distinction of the Latter-day Church's first martyr. Greatly exaggerated news of the battle at Crooked River soon reached Missouri Governor Lilburn Boggs, one report claimed that the Latter-day Saints had massacred the entirety of Bogart's militia. In actuality, only one member of the militia lost his life. Perhaps most troubling, though, the Latter-day Saints had fired upon an officially sanctioned Missouri State Militia. Never mind the fact that the militia fired first, and it was nearly impossible to distinguish between a mob and a militia at the time. This was all the excuse Boggs needed to issue his infamous extermination order, on October 27, 1838, which read, in part, The Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state, if necessary, for the public good. Their outrages are beyond all description. The Battle of Crooked River had not just enraged Governor Boggs, it also provoked angry Missourians. On October 30, 1838, a mob of 240 men converged on a small Latter-day Saint community at Hans Mill. 
There, the mob shot indiscriminately at the Latter-day Saint settlers, including women, elderly men, and children. In the end, 17 saints lost their lives, and another 13 were wounded. Most of the death took place inside the blacksmith shop, where the Latter-day Saints kept their store of weapons, and the men ran in a futile effort to defend their settlement. While Hans Mill took place after Governor Boggs' extermination order, the mob was acting on its own volition. There is no evidence that suggests that they even knew about the extermination order at the time. The so-called Mormon War quickly concluded after Hans Mill. Reports of the massacre convinced Joseph Smith that the kingdom of God would not be won with rifles and bullets. On the morning of November 1st, two days after Hans Mill, Joseph presented himself before a Missouri militia. He thought he was there to discuss a truce, but was instead taken prisoner along with a number of other church leaders. That night, a sham trial was held among the militia's camp, where Joseph Smith and his fellow captured church leaders were pronounced guilty and scheduled to be executed the next morning. In an act of great courage, General Alexander Donovan responded to his commanding officer upon receiving the order to carry out the executions. It is cold-blooded murder. I will not obey your order. My brigade shall march for liberty tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, and if you execute these men, I will hold you responsible before an earthly tribunal, so help me God. Intimidated by Donovan's threat, the commanding officer canceled the planned executions. Joseph and a handful of other church leaders were then moved to Independence and from Independence to Richmond while awaiting trial. In Richmond, a court of inquiry was held for the church leaders. The inquiry ran for over two weeks, with a number of witnesses blaming the saints for all the violence in Davies County and the Battle of Crooked River. Most hurtful must have been the testimony offered against Joseph by some of his longtime friends, including Thomas Marsh, Orson Hyde, William Phelps, John Whitmer, among others. The rest of the saints in Missouri fared little better. Harassed and molested by militia and mobs, the saints were expected to vacate the state by spring. Their persecution was so bad, however, that they elected to leave in the dead of winter at the end of January into the beginning of February 1839. Brigham Young, a veteran of Zion's camp, led the exodus, encouraging the saints to travel together to Illinois. If there ever was a time to give up the dream of the kingdom of God, now was that time. By the time Joseph Smith was transferred to Liberty Jail to await a trial of charges of treason, he had lost the temple in Kirtland, the city of Zion, and his people were in dire straits, facing an eviction from Missouri with no obvious place to go. What's more, friends and leaders of the church had betrayed the cause. By this time, all three witnesses of the Book of Mormon were out of the church, Six members of the original Quorum of the Twelve had either been excommunicated or testified against Joseph Smith at the Court of Inquiry. Finally, Liberty Jail itself was a horrible place. The jail was a cellar of about 14 by 14 feet with two tiny windows. The jail constantly stank and was dreadfully cold during the winter months Joseph and his five companions found themselves imprisoned there. The food provided the prisoners was so rancid it often made them sick. And for prisoners like Joseph Smith, Hiram Smith, and Alexander McRae, who was six foot six, the ceiling was too low to stand upright. It is little wonder then 
The Doctrine and Covenants section 121 begins, O God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed, and thine eye, yea, thy pure eye, behold from the eternal heavens the wrongs of thy people and of thy servants, and thine ear be penetrated with their cries? Yea, O Lord, how long shall they suffer these wrongs and unlawful oppressions before thine heart shall be softened toward them, and thy bowels be moved with compassion toward them? By the time Joseph dictated the letters that would become sections 121 through 123, the church's situation had slightly improved. Brigham Young and the remaining leaders of the church had performed admirably while Joseph was incarcerated. Brigham and the others had led somewhere between 8,000 to 10,000 saints safely out of Missouri into Illinois. Kind residents in Illinois had sheltered the saints in Quincy and other communities. The weather was warming, and public opinion toward the church was softening as the true story of the Mormon War was finding daylight. The sections 121, 122, and 123 were received at the end of March 1839 and not at the end of November 1838 is no surprise. I doubt Joseph Smith could have recorded these sections when things looked so dreary. Still, O God, where art thou? Joseph was clearly hurting. Fortunately, for Joseph and for us, the Lord answers him, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine afflictions shall be but a small moment. And then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. The Lord further explains in section 122 that trials can be for our good. Verses 5-7 through seven read, If thou art called to pass through tribulation, if thou art in perils among false brethren, if thou art in perils among robbers, if thou art in perils by land or by sea, if thou art accursed with all manner of false accusations, if thine enemies fall upon thee, if they tear thee from the society of thy father and mother and brethren and sisters, and... If with a drawn sword thine enemies tear thee from the bosom of thy wife, and of thine offspring, and thine elder son, although but six years of age, shall cling to thy garments, and shall say, My father, my father, why can't you stay with us? O oh, my father, what are the men going to do with you? And if then he shall be thrust from thee by the sword, and thou be dragged into prison, and thine enemies prowl around thee like wolves for the blood of the Lamb, and if thou shouldst be cast into the pit, or into the hands of murderers, and the sentence of death passed upon thee, if thou be cast into the deep, if the billowing surge conspire against thee, if fierce winds become thine enemy, if the heavens gather blackness, and all the elements combine to hedge up the way, and above all, if the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide after thee, know thou, my son." that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Finally, Joseph is reminded that his trials, as onerous as they are, pale in comparison to another's. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? This mild rebuke, included smack dab in the middle of our reading this week, reminds me of an experience I had years ago while bemoaning a string of bad luck my family and I had recently experienced. 
My morass was nothing special. In fact, I bet most of us have, at one point or another, complained about life not being fair. This particular time, however, I had an epiphany that has forever altered the way I look at life. As I complained about the bad things happening to me, someone I considered generally a good person, I was struck with a thought. Did I think myself unusual? No, of course not. Why, there are plenty of bad things that happen to plenty of good people. In fact, there are plenty of better people than me who have had far worse experiences than me. It was about this time in my internal dialogue that I thought of the ultimate example of bad things happening to good people. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? If anyone had any right to complain about life being unfair, it was Jesus Christ. He led the perfect life. If anyone should expect a life full of rainbows and lollipops, it's him. Yet he suffered more than any of us ever could comprehend. And he suffered all that for us. That's when it hit me. I don't want life to be fair. Fairness includes punishment for every sin and mistake I've ever made. Fairness includes accountability for the countless times I've come up short. Fairness includes eternal separation from my Heavenly Mother and Father. I don't want fair. I want mercy. And because Christ chose to live the ultimate unfair life, mercy is available to each and every one of us. After that realization, I've never been the same. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 121, also includes what I consider to be the greatest explanation of what it means to worthily exercise the priesthood. And, based on recent teachings from President Nelson and President Oaks, this counsel applies to both men and women of the Church as we fulfill Church responsibilities given to us under the authority of the priesthood. Possibly thinking of Thomas Marsh, Orson Hyde, and William Phelps, Joseph dictated the following, Behold, there are many called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are set so much upon the things of this world, and aspire to the honors of men, that they do not learn this one lesson, that the rites of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven, and that the powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness. That they may be conferred upon us, it is true. But when we undertake to cover our sins, or to gratify our pride, our vain ambition, or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, behold, the heavens withdraw themselves, the Spirit of the Lord is grieved, and when it is withdrawn, amen to the priesthood or the authority of that man. We have learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men, as soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. Hence, many are called, but few are chosen. He then explains what it means to righteously exercise priesthood authority. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile, reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love towards him whom thou hast reproved, 
lest he esteem thee to be his enemy, that he may know that thy faithfulness is stronger than the cords of death. Let thy bowels also be full of charity toward all men, and to the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. I love these verses. I couldn't begin to guess how many times I've read them. If this right here was the entirety of the church's handbook, we would be pretty much okay. Although we wouldn't know if corn stalks are permitted in our buildings. They are not. Or the quarter when the primary program should be held. The fourth quarter. And while this instruction applies to both men and women of the church, let me make an observation for the men. Pay attention to the words used to describe a worthy priesthood holder, used in verses 41 through 45. Virtuous, persuasive, long-suffering, gentle, meek, loving, kind, without hypocrisy and guile, charitable. I don't know about you, but when I think of the world's definition of manhood, these are not the words that come to mind. There is nothing in here about being muscular or rich or aggressive or any of the other ways the world seems to define a man. These scriptures make me think of some of Lehi's last words to his sons Laman and Lemuel. Now, if anyone could be described as manly in the scriptures, it was Laman and Lemuel. They spent a big chunk of their time hunting, after all. Manly men like camping, right? These guys went on an eight-year camping trip. You remember how the scriptures define Nephi as a man large in stature? Laman and Lemuel beat him up. Repeatedly. Yeah, they were manly men. If ancient Jerusalem had aluminum cans, you can be sure that Laman and Lemuel would have crushed them on their foreheads. So what did Lehi say to Laman and Lemuel while on his deathbed? Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. Remember that scripture in Isaiah? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. God's definition of a man is not the world's definition of a man. He expects something more from us. Something that may be a bit foreign to us. As priesthood holders, we need to be set apart from the world. For this reason, I think it's a good idea to return again and again to these verses to regularly complete an inventory and see where we stack up to the ideal. Joseph's letters from Liberty Jail conclude with this message found in Doctrine and Covenants section 123, verse 17. Therefore, dearly beloved brethren, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power, and then may we stand still, with the utmost assurance, to see the salvation of God, and for his arm to be revealed. How awesome is it that after spending months in the dank, dark dungeon that was Liberty Jail, Joseph can still preach of cheerfulness. In this, he reminds me of the Book of Mormon hero Amulek. You'll remember that Amulek preached with Alma in his hometown of Ammonihah, and that their preaching was not well received. Amulek, like Joseph Smith in Missouri, saw the faithful murdered for their belief. Amulek, like Joseph, lost property. Amulek, like Joseph, saw dear friends reject him. Amulek, like Joseph, experienced harsh conditions while unjustly imprisoned. And Amulek, like Joseph, somehow found a way to preach joy, despite all the tribulation he endured. In Alma chapter 34, Amulek counsels the Zoramite poor to live in thanksgiving daily. 
Perhaps Amulek and Joseph Smith can preach cheerfulness despite horrific trials because they both understand what Jesus Christ's atonement ultimately promises them. They figured out long before I did that this life is ultimately unfair to our advantage. Joseph Smith shares another parallel with Amulek. Despite the many days abused in a prison cell, both men are able to later forgive their abusers. After Alma and Amulek are delivered from their prison, they learn that their antagonist, Zeezrom, is suffering from a burning fever in the next town over. You'll remember that over the course of their debate with Zeezrom on the streets of Ammonihah, Zeezrom became convinced of the righteousness of the missionary's argument. Unfortunately, by the time Zeezrom comes to this conviction, his clever arguments have already convinced the wicked of Ammonihah to condemn Alma and Amulek. Upon hearing the news that Zeezrom is struggling and asking for the missionaries, Alma and Amulek went immediately to his side, where Zeezrom was healed and baptized. I have to believe that this was not an easy thing for Amulek. I'd imagine he thought a lot about his debate with Zeezrom and the results of that debate while suffering in prison. Remember, Ammonihah was Amulek's home. He likely knew the women and children murdered for his teachings. His own wife and children were likely among those martyrs. It would have been so easy for Amulek to leave Zeezrom on his sickbed to suffer and possibly die over his guilt. But Amulek joined Alma in rushing to Zeezrom's aid. And if that wasn't enough of a witness of Amulek's forgiving heart, consider this. Years later, when Alma gathers missionaries for his ministry to the Zormites, he pulls Amulek and Zeezrom from the land of Melek. Not only had Amulek forgiven Zeezrom, but he later served side by side with him. Joseph, too, was quick to forgive those who offended him. Orson Hyde, whose written affidavit accusing Joseph Smith of intent to overrun the state, crossed the desk of Lilburn Boggs in the days before Boggs issued his extermination order, humbly asked for forgiveness, and was welcomed back into the church in 1839. William Phelps, who testified against Joseph at his court of inquiry, penned a letter to Joseph Smith some two years later, asking if he might once again return to the church. Joseph's response to Phelps is worth quoting. You may in some measure realize what my feelings, as well as Elder Rigdon's and Brother Hiram's were, when we read your letter. Truly, our hearts were melted into tenderness and compassion when we ascertained your resolves. It is true that we have suffered much in consequence of your behavior. The cup of gall, already full enough for mortals to drink, was indeed filled to overflowing when you turned against us. However, the cup has been drunk. The will of our Father has been done, and we are yet alive, for which we thank the Lord. And, having been delivered from the hands of wicked men by the mercy of our God, we say it is your privilege to be delivered from the powers of the adversary, be brought into the liberty of God's dear children, and again take your stand among the saints of the Most High. And by diligence, humility, and love unfeigned, commend yourself to our God, and to your God, and to the Church of Jesus Christ. Believing your confession to be real, and your repentance genuine, I shall be happy once again to give you the right hand of fellowship and rejoice over the returning prodigal. Come on, dear brother, since the war is past, for friends at first are friends again at last. Yours as ever, Joseph Smith Jr. Within a month of dictating the letters that include Doctrine and Covenants 121 through 123, 
Joseph Smith and his four fellow prisoners, Sidney Rigdon had priorly been released, escaped from Missouri authorities and worked their way to the body of the saints in Illinois. During their incarceration, Joseph and his friends had tried to escape a couple of times before, being foiled each time. But by April 1839, the powers that be wanted the whole business behind them. Boggs's extermination order was already aging poorly, and the massacre at Hans Mill was an embarrassment to the state. Therefore, on April 12th, while traveling with five guards to a new venue, the prisoners were allowed to escape. On April 22nd, they arrived in Quincy, Illinois. After nearly six months of imprisonment, Joseph, Hiram, and the others were finally free. We'll pick up their story during next week's Come Follow Me lesson. At a BYU devotional in September 2008, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland offered some lessons each of us can take from the Liberty Gel. He said, Every one of us, in one way or another, great or small, dramatic or incidental, are going to spend a little time in Liberty Jail, spiritually speaking. We will face things we do not want to face for reasons that may not have been our fault. Indeed, we may face difficult circumstances for reasons that were absolutely right and proper, reasons that came because we were trying to keep the commandments of the Lord. We may face persecution. We may endure heartache and separation from loved ones. We may be hungry and cold and forlorn. Yes, before our lives are over, we may all be given a little taste of what the prophets faced often in their lives. But the lessons of the winter of 1838-39 teach us that every experience can become a redemptive experience if we remain bonded to our Father in heaven through that difficulty. These difficult lessons teach us that man's extremity is God's opportunity. And if we will be humble and faithful, if we will be believing and not curse God for our problems, he can turn the unfair and the inhumane and debilitating prisons of our life into temples, or at least into a circumstance that can bring comfort and revelation, divine companionship, and peace. At the beginning of this podcast, I cautioned that we sometimes discount the struggles found throughout history because we happen to know how things turn out. I suggested perhaps we could better appreciate historical events if we placed ourselves in the shoes of those experiencing the stories. Ultimately, though, we do know the end from the beginning. And not just when it comes to stories from the past, but our own stories, too. For we know that in the end, God will prevail. In the end, Christ's atonement will make us whole. In the end, no matter what our own personal liberty gel looks like, all these things shall be, if we let them, for our good. Of this I testify, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.